Hello, and welcome to episode two of The Miss Fisher Files. I'm Mary. And I'm Chandler. And today we're talking about episode two, Murder on the Ballarat Train. So Chandler, where should we start? Where to start? There's kind of a lot here. We get introduced to a lot of major characters, and we get to see Franny's house for the first time. And we meet Mr. Butler. We do, and we meet Jane. Yeah. So there's a lot going on here. There is. So where should we start? Um, let's let's just go ahead and talk about Mr. Butler. Okay. Let's, let's just get that over let's with. Dive in. Yeah. <laughs> I love how when we first meet Mr. Butler, we kind of get the wrong idea mm-hmm. about him. We think he's going to be kind of the conservative, straight-laced type. He talks about his departed wife and how she would have loved meeting a spinster <laughs> who loves the quiet life. And I. <laughs> I, I may be wrong, but I wonder if this is maybe the first and only time in the series that they actually use the word spinster. I think you might be right. I don't recall hearing it ever. Yeah, I think they again. actively avoid that. And yeah. I think it's kind of a tongue in cheek right. joke here. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, Bert and Sess spit out their tea <laughs> over it. <laughs> well, and it makes me a little worried because he sounds so excited to have a quiet person yeah. to take care of and that's so not what he's yeah. gonna get and, and i think they cut immediately to her doing something yeah, you know, ridiculous and not quiet she's on the end of the train she's <laughs> hanging off of it going <laughs> perfect friny juxtaposition yes. right there <laughs> um but how wrong we are about mr butler <laughs> so quickly and um, I, I love that one of the first things we see about him when he after he meets Miss Fisher is he is not disapproving of her at all. He actually seems quite approving mm-hmm. of not having his expectations met. Um, and we see that he already anticipates everything she needs. He's standing there with a tray of Turkish delight. <laughs> is there anything better than that? <laughs> I wish I could be met with a tray of candy when I, I arrive. Yeah, uh, Mr. Home. Butler, where are you? I, I, oh, we need you. I and Franny's house is just phenomenal. And and I love, I I really geek out about historic houses. And so the, the first time I saw this and I saw the house, I just started yelling Italian it, Italian it. <laughs> um, and yeah, that that house type would have been very popular. Um, it would have been built in around the 1880s, I would imagine. The hmm. Italian style was really popular during the Victorian era. And um, we have quite a lot in our town. Um, they, w- they were extremely popular during the late 19th century. Huh. And so it would have been an older home even then, in the 1920s. It would have been about maybe 30, 40 years old. I'm sure we could look this up on Wikipedia. But um, it, it, so it's kind of interesting. It's a Victorian era house. But then once you get inside, you see that it's been kind of updated to more modern sensibilities we see that gold stenciling that's everywhere Mm -hmm. like in the in the stairwell and in the is that the parlor where where the fireplace is and the turquoise walls um that's a very 19 teens 1920s aesthetic Hmm. but it's in this 1880s house which i think is really really interesting and clearly she's in a wealthy suburban neighborhood like she's in the city clearly but it's residential. Yeah. It's she's got a corner lot. I think she's right on the water too. Is she? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And I love there's this little detail that you come back to again and again and there in front of her house there's a horse trough. Yeah. And I keep wondering is that real? Like I bet <laughs> there are still horse troughs mm-hmm. around Victoria. Um but 
is it real? Is it a prop? I don't know. And we see it, it later on. I think I don't know about this episode, but in other episodes, certainly we see people riding by in horse and buggies, right. not just automobiles. So it's definitely in that crossover era. Mm-hmm. I think that's so, so interesting, those little details. And they totally get them right. I yeah. just love that. Can we talk costumes for a minute? Yes. <laughs> Always. Oh, man. There, there is, this episode is so jam-packed full of costumes. And we kind of get, we're starting to really get a sense for the signatures of these characters. Mm-hmm. So Dot is in her classic peach and beige and brown look. <laughs> she seems to wear that in every episode. Yeah. In one variation or, or another. I always get the sense she's trying to fade into the background. Yeah. She's, she's very matronly for being mm-hmm. so young. I mean, she can't be any more than 21 or 22, and she dresses so matronly. She does. I kind of feel like her, she views her relationship as the mother, you know, yeah. to Phryne. And I think but, she was kind of raised that way. I mean, she came from a Catholic yeah. family, and she has she's kind of a motherly type. Mm-hmm. And she, Even though Phryne is very much a mentor in a lot of ways to her. Right. She's so not motherly. Of, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Phryne and the ostrich feathers. There's so oh, many ostrich feathers. She's wearing boas, and she's wearing that ostrich feather in her hat. <laughs> and that incredible lavender dress when she's lounging on the hood of her car oh by the river. Oh, my gosh. That scene is so funny. <laughs> so funny. And that dress is, even for the time, I think, bordering on scandalous. Yeah. And she's wearing it in broad daylight middle of the afternoon or whatever it is. It's such a cool cut, too. The asymmetrical and very narrow strap on one side. And that glittering diamond belt. Uh Uh-huh. It's just incredible. Plus, she's got tickets to the gun show with those, like, toned (laughs) arms. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And only in the 1920s could a couple of swaggering heterosexual guys walk around in purple striped suits. <laughs> so I've been wondering about those suits. Are they specific to rowing clubs? Maybe. I, I feel like we see... I think there's some sort of university uniform because they're both on the team. They mm-hmm. both are students. So I don't know if they're rowing uniforms or if they're just university, university. Or, or some sort of all, all-purpose sports uniform. I've seen it in another show. Was it Downton? I feel like I yeah, saw it somewhere maybe. else and wondered if that was specific to rowing. And that I've also seen in historical photos of college students, university students, I've seen them wear like beanies, hmm. those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So it feels like a kind of university tradition. Yeah. It's just not clear to me exactly what it is. But it, it clearly marks them as being students, as being part of some sort of team or club. or, mm-hmm. um, And I think that's that's kind of an interesting marker. It and then when you find out that they ridiculous. switch places, yeah, these yeah, guys yeah. like want they'll take the rap for the other if they're drunk or something, and that plays into who's a suspect and for what. Mm-hmm. So I think that is an interesting play on having these matching uniforms. Right, it's like a marker yeah. for for the show. I think it's interesting too. I, I if I were making this show, I would be so tempted to make it tongue in cheek because is there anything more ridiculous than those suits? And <laughs> they do it with a completely straight face yeah nobody nobody makes a joke about these two guys in these ridiculous uniforms i know it kind of reminds me of the guards at the vatican oh yeah the swiss, the swiss guards yeah. <laughs> nobody i mean now if if there was ever an over-the-top uniform 
Yeah. And people who can wear it with a straight face. Yeah, you know they've been through a lot of training. I and they know. can take anybody down. I know. So. Between, oh, those guys and like the, the beef eaters and their mm-hmm. fur hats at Buckingham Palace. I You got to hand it to those guys. Yeah. <laughs> that is a rough job being pointed at and laughed at by tourists all day. Maybe isn't but it? knowing you can take any of them. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you have been trained. Oh, yeah. Maybe that should be our toast. Classic <laughs> ridiculous outfits. Yeah. <laughs> Two ridiculous uniforms everywhere. <laughs> oh, man. Um, there's also some really beautiful, I mean, there's the flashy feather boas and the flashy lavender dress, but there's also some beautiful, subtle costumes as well. Like we see, of course, Jack's signature gray trench coat. Um, but also the, the passenger on the train who has the young son, the little boy who's a Mm -hmm. suspect because he has a vendetta against the old lady. Right. Um, he's wearing this beautiful camel colored herringbone jacket (laughs) and and a matching ochre wool tie that I just drool over. I'm so glad you are noticing the men's (laughs) costumes. Men's wear get such short shrift in television. They do. And you know, they're almost never as flashy purple coats notwithstanding um usually they're not nearly as flashy as the women's costumes but i just love them in this they're so, so beautiful funny. They have, everything pales in comparison to Friday's wardrobe i know i know she gets the big budget you can mm-hmm. tell <laughs> i think they blow their whole costume budget on yeah, her i think they do <laughs> um the designer marion boyce i was reading some interviews with her and and actually they interviewed se davis too about working with her and Apparently, Marion Boyce had some fabric from the 20s that she'd never cut into. And, I mean, I think anyone in her line of work probably has a treasure trove of fabric and accessories and feathers and just all kinds of stuff. And I know that she pulled things from her collection and then she had friends who had collections and she was able to, to get things from them too. But... How cool to actually have the fabric from the 20s and oh, finally yeah. have this wonderful reason to cut into it yeah. and create these new clothes out of fabric from that era. Yeah, I, I, I'm always happy when I hear stories like that. Like I, I, I tend to really geek out about interiors and costumes and things. And it makes me think of like the Lord of the Rings films, hmm. how they used a lot of vintage fabrics to make those costumes. Or if you think back to... The, the Anne of Green Gables from the 80s, <laughs> right. they actually used vintage Victorian wallpaper. Really? That was new old stock that they oh, cut wow. and used for the sets in there. And huh. so it looks absolutely authentic because it was. And right. I wonder if there isn't more of that happening here. Like they're using vintage fabrics. I wonder if they also used vintage interior details. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did. Yeah, I think they probably did. And I'm trying to remember what interview it was. It might have been on the have you watched Miss Fisher Uncovered? No. It's like a behind the scenes of the show, but I think it's for people who have not seen the show oh, and yeah. trying to entice them and kind of give them an overview. Yeah. The voiceover is very difficult for me to get past. So I don't know. It's done, like they said, Melbourne, which oh. drove me crazy. And They called it Melbourne? Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah. But... It's Melbourne. Yeah, it is Melbourne. Right. But the person who was narrating did not realize that. So that kind of killed it for me. I'm like, uh... Was it an American? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, because what Australia was a Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think it was in that 
program where Carrie Greenwood goes through the set and talks about all of the pieces that they found and how many of them were from the era. Oh, yeah. So I think there probably aren't too many replicas. Like, I think they actually found the original items. I keep thinking about, like, her, this is such a dorky detail, but her fireplace screen is shaped like a peacock. (gasps) And that is a really common piece actually in fact if you went on craigslist today you'd probably find 15 of them really just locally yeah um and i know this because my husband and i are trying to look for a period fireplace screen (laughs) for our 1920s fireplace right now and we have not found one that we like but if we wanted that peacock one we could get it tomorrow because it's it was a really common design common from for that era yeah yeah regardless of like class level or i I don't know the history of it but i i would imagine it was probably a Mm mass-produced piece because they're so common there you can find them at antique stores um i I think they probably were able to get their hands on one really easily it's clearly period but i wonder if it wasn't a mass-produced item. And and there was a lot of mass production happening then. I don't know about it in Australia, but in the U.S., the Sears Craftsman Home is a perfect example. Hmm. You could buy the pieces to build your own home from a kit, and that kit was designed by, in the craftsman style, in very, you know, style A, style B, you could pick from a variety of styles, and they'd ship you all the materials, all the beams, all the hardware, everything, and then you'd build your house to the specifications and plans, and it was a hand-built house with real materials, but it came from a kit, basically. So it's really kind of an interesting mix. One thing that is really interesting about the show, I think, is it's sort of a classic murder mystery formula we have the murder on a closed area where people can't leave we assume that nobody new can show up Mm -hmm. because they're on a train they're out in the middle of nowhere it's seemingly impossible because we think that the the train hasn't stopped anywhere except for the water stop which we find out um, there's also the the introduction of the classic bumbling local constabulary (laughs) right right (laughs) who shows up yep so it's I love how they play off of that kind of classic mystery background. And yeah, they play off of Murder on the Orient Express. Yep. Yeah. But handle it very differently. There is okay, there is one scene when they're on the train and I think it's when she and Jack are walking to Eunice's uh, compartment. Mm. And they turn a corner and keep walking a really long way which I don't think is physically possible on a train. It's like they've walked down this very long corridor. Yeah. They turn and continue walking down a very long corridor. Yeah, that seems odd. That is not possible. You can't turn 90 degrees. You could turn 180 degrees and do it again. But they don't. And I really, I've watched it several times. I'm like, did they just, how how does this work? I think they must have done a weird cut and then shown the passage again. I, I guess so. It bugs me, though. That's so funny. It's clearly a real train car, though. I oh, mean, it's gorgeous, too. And with I mean, that Art Nouveau detailing in the woodwork. It makes me oh. want to take a really long train ride somewhere. Yeah. Even though Amtrak is not nearly <laughs> so beautiful, unfortunately. But, yeah, it's just a stunning train. It is. It's beautiful. I love that they have access to those things. And, of course, what's really nice is that... I mean, all of this stuff is, of course, antique now, but it's not so old that you can't get a hold of it. Right. If if this were a medieval show, <laughs> good luck. There's no like everyday right. stuff left from that period. It's too it was too long ago. But there's tons of everyday stuff left over from the Victorian era, the mm-hmm. 1920s. So they can get their hands on 
a Art Nouveau train car. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I do love when they get to the compartment and he said, no, this was locked. How did you get oh. it open? And I love that he just doesn't bat an uh, eye. My shoe? Wow. Well, your, your shoe, shoe is just ballistic capabilities <laughs> of a nine millimeter or whatever it was. <laughs> Such a good line. And it really, like that really sets the stage for their banter and his ex- expectations Ugh. of her and his wonderful deadpan Ugh, i know and then she busted out her gun and shot off the lock i know on an enclosed train i know so yeah and she doesn't bat an eye either i mean uh-huh. I, when i first saw that i'm thinking oh i hope that doesn't ricochet or what <laughs> I, know. I know i was thinking about that too. <laughs> but it's not going to because she did it so that's it's right she's a superhero true it will work the first time perfectly yep yeah oh just i love her and I love that she, even when Jack kicks her out of Eunice's compartment, or is it Eunice or is it it's a, her own, I believe. And okay. she's talking to the man who's the father. Of the little kid. Yeah. Yeah. So he boots her out. Uh-huh. And then she, but but she hasn't had the last word yet. She says, Jack, come back here. And then she says, ask him, right. ask her about the... She does a little head nod. Yeah. And he's like, okay, what does she And he know? does what she says. I know. He actually does what she says. I thought it was, the first time I saw it, I thought he was going to ignore her and that it would it would come up later because he ignored her. But that's mm-hmm. not where they went at all. He actually took her advice. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not the first time. It, that kind of sets the tone for... It does. Yeah. I mean, this episode really, we see a big change in their overall relationship. Yeah. And... He's still exasperated with her... Yeah, but, but he clearly he's bringing her into it. Yeah, and he recognizes that she can get further in some departments than he can. Yep, especially with Jean. <laughs> and that that actually is my quote from this episode when uh, he's talking to Hugh and he's like, "Well, we may need Miss Fisher after all." And then they're walking up, but you don't see what they're coming up to yet. And then she says, "No, I don't do kids." <laughs> Especially uncooperative ones. And just the way she says it is so perfect. No, I don't do kids. And I think we also get another bit of foreshadowing, too, because when she finds out, when Jane finally consents to talk to her and tells her her name, there's this pause. Mm-hmm. And it gets through to Franny because it's her sister's name. Yeah, I think she kind of tears up a little bit. Yeah. Like, she's sort of socked in the gut when Jane says, my name is Jane. Yeah. So... And I think I think she f- realizes that she sees a lot of herself in Jane, mm-hmm. and maybe she sees something of her lost sister in Jane. We don't know, but I really wonder if Phryne maybe wouldn't have taken her in if that moment hadn't have happened. Was it just the name? Do you think, or, or I Jane's think it's more than that. But I think that overall situation, saying the name, I think, is really what opened that door mm-hmm. because well. I. Jane wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Jane's lucky your name was Jane. <laughs> and I, you know, but Franny's lucky too, because Jane, yeah. Jane is like Sess and Bert and she's like Dot and she's like Mr. Butler. All of these people have benefited from Franny, but also are a huge help to Franny mm-hmm. and make Franny's life richer. And Franny has said from the beginning that she's not going to commit to a man. She's not the mothering type. But here she is, nonetheless, she's devoted to Jack after a short time. She's devoted to Jane mm-hmm. almost immediately. And she's devoted to all these other people in her life when she is not supposed to be the nurturing type, but right. she is just in she's her own way. She's loyal yeah. to the people that she has around her. She's sort of collected into her yeah. pseudo-family. 
And they sort of rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. They do. For her. I love how Jane is sort of this little feminine Oliver Twist type. Uh And she even works for a Fagin type character, the hypnotist guy. What is with the hypnotist guy? But he's a perfect Fagin character. Like he's getting these kids to pickpocket people and bring their treasures home and there's like a quota they have to meet and he's the kind of gross yeah you know he's trying to be dapper but he's really disgusting right I feel like they really had to tone him down for TV you know like it would have been a much more disgusting story in a lot of ways if they hadn't like brought it yeah brought it down so that it was more palatable yeah and I think it's hilarious that he hypnotizes Bert <laughs> like, just cracks me up. Well, he's like, nope, can't do it. I know a guy in there. <laughs> and then Sass is like, oh, is that the one who made you cluck like a chicken and lay an egg? <laughs> but then, and then he says, no, we promised Miss Fisher we'd do it. Yeah. And so Bert's like, fine. And he goes back. And then in four and seconds it. later, he's hypnotized and yeah. you know, laying eggs again. <laughs> I, I think my my only complaint is maybe. I think that was just a little on the the silly side, and then, <laughs> and then of course he, you know he shows up at Franny's house later. There are I think this episode has far too many parts to the storyline. Yeah. So usually an episode is kind of bookended with a with a particular scene or yep. like that story. Yep. And in this one, we just go from one thing to the next to the next. Yeah. And then it ends with like a really ludicrous showdown, kind of with the hypnotist at yeah, her house. Yeah, like they could have left that hypnotist out entirely. I think they could have. We could have. I mean, Jane could have been your garden variety street rat, sure, orphan pickpocket. We don't necessarily need to see her. Her Fagin, her quote unquote aunt, was terrifying. Terrifying by herself. She, she was way scarier, I yeah, think, I than know. the hypnotist. Far scarier. And so that I, scene had so much tension to it. Mm-hmm. How terrified! And Jane, up to that point, was not scared of anything. Right. She, the cops couldn't intimidate yep. her. And then, and then this, this woman shows, shows up. up in the middle of the night, and it's terrifying. Yeah. I think they should have stuck with that yeah. and just gotten rid of the hypnotist thing altogether. Because, yeah. I mean, it was funny to watch Bert be scared sure. or intimidated by somebody, but it wasn't worth it. It was just so convoluted. Yeah. And Franny didn't end. need yet another chance to show what a superhero is. <laughs> she right. can't even be well, hypnotized. We did find out a little bit more about Mr. Butler. True. So, I mean, that Yeah, the guy helps. can, like, judo chop you. <laughs> in the corner he was in or whatever. the AIF or whatever. Our, yeah, what? Our, it wasn't... <sighs> What is it? What are they? Is yeah, what do they call it in Australia? I I missed it. Was it AIF? What's the I? Australian, Australian Infantry Forces? Maybe. Maybe he can oh, hold his own, Mr. Butler. He'll be a good good person to have on staff there. He has and, no idea what's headed his way. Yeah, <laughs> I, I need like a tea cozy knitting, butt kicking, <laughs> oozy collecting, <laughs> Turkish delight serving. <laughs> Butler. Don't we all? <laughs> Resume must be able to. Yeah. Karate chop, pin a guy into a corner. That would be such a funny resume to write. Or like. Makes a mean cup of tea. You could, you could do a mock-up of Franny's um, ad in the paper looking oh. for a butler. Be so good. Must be sweet-tempered. Unwilling to take any guff. Yeah. It'd probably be a lot like the one in Mary Poppins that the kids come up with for their next nanny. We will never give you cause to hate us. <laughs> <laughs> We've been watching that a lot in my house lately, oh. so that's why the comparison comes to mind really quickly. I never quickly. smell of barley water. <laughs> <laughs>
what else? Oh, oh, what book is Franny reading on the train? Oh, oh it's yeah. Lady Chatterley's Lover. <laughs> How perfect is that? And was it's that, the first but not the last naughty book that she's reading in this series. Was it banned? It was banned. I don't know about Australia. I think it was. But it was banned in various places. Yeah. Because it's a racy book. <laughs> I have not yet read it. I have not either. I've read other D.H. Lawrence, but I haven't okay. read that one. It's on my list. It's clearly on Franny's list. Yep. I want to put it on Dot's list. <laughs> and you know, I it's kind of funny because she... There's kind of this model of being a mentor where instead of coming up to someone and saying, here, you should read this, you just kind of have it around and see if they pick it up on their own. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is her style with Dot. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if she were to leave that that book out, lying out in the house somewhere, and Dot would find it, and Dot has this little awakening. Right. But when it comes to, say, Hugh, in a later episode, she actually hands him the freaking Kama Kama Sutra. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's a little thicker. He's not going to pick that up on his own, I think. Yeah, they they actually work that in pretty well. That scene is so funny. One of my favorite scenes, I think. When he's at the station, he's reading and it. And his eyes like, are the biggest saucers. Arm, he's extending his arm and like trying to figure out physically how this works. So funny. Adorable. So adorable. I, and I just love that she reads naughty books mm-hmm. in front of her sleeping dot. So great. <laughs> and she cannot abide by cards. Yeah. They're just too boring. I, I'm with you. to see the point. I'm with you, Franny. I'm so with you on that one. I think we should briefly talk about the scene in Eunice's compartment where mm. Hugh is coming to get the inspector, but Jack and Franny are like, of course. Nose to nose. Yes, nose to nose as they often are. And, and what a great perspective through the exterior of the window. Yeah. What a great shot. It was a really well done and shot. And novel because that's a tight space to mm-hmm. be able to film in. And so I love that they, they mm-hmm. did it that way. And then you see the detail of the bit of fuzz stuck yeah, the, in the window the frame. Bit of dress and then red paint from her shoe. Yep. People leather. But then they're locked, like their horns get locked and then you can see what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that was when this, I realized, oh, okay, okay. This like frustration slash flirtation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I got then how the show was going to be. And I was very happy about it. Yeah. Like the constantly being frustrated was going to get really old really fast. Right. And we hear kind of the same thing happens in a parallel case. She interrupts Hugh and Dot in the hallway of the, the compartment. And then uh, we get to hear that refrain of slightly out of tune the ragtime piano, piano yep. ballad <laughs> in the background. And so it begins. Yep. <laughs> yep. So there's kind of this parallel thing going on. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so funny to see it play out between the two very experienced worldly people. Mm-hmm. And then it plays out with these two, like, just innocent babes in the woods. So, so I think that Dot and Hugh are there to kind of balance out the will-they-won't-they they angst right. of Jack and Because Franny. you know they clearly will. Yes. They have to, right? They have right? to. Every cloud, right? Yeah. I, they have to. So it's nice to have the lighter relationship with Dot and Hugh, and it's less of a will they, won't they. It's more of a they will, but very chastely and in their own time right. and with family obligations. And also, we're not going to make this the whole focus of the show because right. we got other stuff to cover. Thank <laughs> yes, you very do. much. <laughs> 
which I love. And it doesn't center around, nobody's pinning their whole hopes on a man, not even Dot. Dot, the more traditional, Mm -hmm. uh, conservative, innocent character, she's not, she's not pinning her, she's not centering her whole life around whether or not Hugh likes her. Further into that season, she has already committed to him when he, is it, wait, is it season two? Spoiler. I think it is season two. Okay. But then she puts off their engagement because yeah, she, she doesn't want to give up her work. Yeah. Yeah. Even when she's decided, like, yeah, he's and the one. And then Jack but... has to explain to Hugh the paradox of the modern woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dottie, it's a paradox. <laughs> oh, Hugh. Again, I know. It's adorable. So I had forgotten how um, intense that moment was in the train with the two of them until I did a rewatch of the whole season. Because when I first watched these, I wasn't sure how their relationship was going to go. And right. and then I was like, oh, okay, there's going to be this tension. Um, but I didn't realize, like, kind of how hot that scene is. Oh, yeah. Until I rewatched and I was like, it's on. And then the <laughs> camera gets right in, like, yep. really, really close. And and I, I think also that this is where the production design shows up really strongly. So I studied animation for a while when I was in college. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I thought I wanted to be an animator and then did a year of it and hated it. <laughs> but it turned out what I was really interested in was the drawing and the storytelling. Oh, okay. So that's what kind of led me to what I do now. But... When I was studying animation, one of the things we were taught was that a great way to establish a character is to have a very strong silhouette. So that if you were to see the characters only in silhouette, you'd be able to tell them apart. So then if you run into the problem of all the characters looking the same, then the story's going to get really muddled really fast. So you could look at any good animated film and you can distill every single character into a strong silhouette. And you see that same thing in Franny Fisher. Franny has such a strong silhouette. Yeah, she's she got really that does. sweep of the curve of her hair. She's uh-huh, got that the nose, the nose yep. that that it, upturned nose, yeah. the little ski jump mm-hmm. nose, and and then Jack too has that kind of chiseled jaw, and and his his silhouette with his shoulders. He's got those broad shoulders mm-hmm. and that trench coat and that fedora that he always wears. I, it's and Franny's much more rounded and heart shaped and and sleek mm-hmm. it's just so interesting how and you could totally you could stand dot and hue in a line in silhouette and pick them yeah, out too that is so interesting i'm going to pay attention now i see <laughs> animated things yeah look at the silhouette but i think characters. it holds up with live action too yeah it's, i think it probably does and you know i think about um speaking of julian fellows um <laughs> gosford park oh. takes place Around the same the same era, uh, Maggie Smith even plays the exact same character exact as she does same. in Downton Abbey, except she's even meaner in Gosford <laughs> Park and even more fabulous. My problem with that film and a lot of Julian Fellows' work is mm-hmm. the characters are really hard to tell apart. First of all, he do- he only names them like off screen, <laughs> and you hear their name once and then you never hear it again, yeah. so you can't figure out who the heck anybody is talking about. He um, works with these really large ensembles and really so large ensemble cast can get a little and there's a lot of people who kind of look alike they're like in gosford park there's three sisters who are all of the same age and wear similar outfits and have similar <laughs> builds and you never hear them by name when they're in the room so you never know who's right. who and it's and there's there is not that problem in franny fisher everybody is very distinct in how they look mm-hmm. how they walk how they act you're never going to, even Sess and Bert, who are probably the two most similar characters, right. even they are distinct enough that you're not going to mix them up. Yeah. And I love that the show does that, that yeah. it gives each character a story and like a profile. Of or even Mac, person. Mac in her suits. Oh, I know. 
I, I, it's just it, it, they, they, they carry that Mac. through it every day. We do need more Mac. There's And is there any Mac in this episode? I don't think there's any Mac. No, there's none. And I think not the next either. I think it's a little while before we see Mac again. <sighs> I'm afraid it is. You know, I think if any, if any show were a candidate for running the Sherlock model of having a long 90-minute episode, this one would so benefit from that because you get even more time with mm-hmm. each character. Um, I think it could totally hold up to that format. Yeah, and I think maybe this episode would have held up better if given more time. Yeah, It and, just feels so rushed. Yeah, and maybe I could have put up with the hypnotist business. Yeah, yeah it just it couldn't all fit in the one hour. Yeah, I wish they would have ditched the hypnotist. <laughs> that ant was so much scarier. So scary. <laughs> So this episode made me realize that they were going to go for it in the creep factor too. Mm. So Eunice's mom hanging from that the water, water tower. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it seriously creeped me. Out. Yeah, <laughs> like I had to look away. I was so scared. I didn't used to be this way. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I now get freaked out about things. I think a lot. it's a turning thirty thing. Yeah, I, I, you're, I, you're afraid of falling all of a sudden, and, you're, and you don't, and you you get more squeamish. What happens? <laughs> Yeah. In the first episode when they're at the the Turkish bath and the naked woman walks by just oh, yeah. to give just like, like ain't no big thing. Yeah, just to give atmosphere. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Oh, they're would going see there. That in the US. Right. Yeah, that's right. You would not see you would that. Not because end, yeah. naked equals sex in this country. And, and God forbid. I don't think that it's the same in Australia. I remember that from when I was there when I was eight. And they had like naughty magazines out on being oh, yeah. sold out on the street, and I had never seen this before. Yep. This was a crazy thing to my little eight-year-old self. And I think it's just a really different culture. And yeah. so it's like, oh, okay, you could add that for atmosphere, and we don't. It does not yeah. have to immediately. It's really kind of nice. I mean, it is. I, I lived in Italy for a year, and and I remember you go to the pharmacy, and there's like a poster in the window facing the street, like showing a breastfeeding woman. Like yeah. it's just not a big bodies deal. Bodies are bodies. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it equals sex every right. single time somebody is naked. And right. It's just so nice to have so nice humanness recognized. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Instead of it having to be representative of something else. Right. So, yeah, in the first And one, all was, the, like, the nude paintings on the wall yeah. in Friday's house. Right. Like, it's just and not that like, big I a mean, deal. If PBS produced this, it would be so different. They'd have to, they'd have to cut. It would be censored. Yeah. And even when Netflix picked up the Miss Fisher series, they got all kinds of complaints about Miss Fisher and how she was giving herself away. And, right. And, and there's no consequences for her being a loose woman and yeah. blah, 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 like, blah, what blah. What are the consequences for James Bond? Oh, or yeah. Roger Moore and the Saint, or like any <sighs> other male character that gets to ever? sleep yeah. in anything ever. With anyone that they want to. Yeah. There's never this yep. question of whether it's a good show or not. It's yeah. just. And even, I mean, I think the closest America's ever come is, say, Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah, we did. And, and even it, then, it, there's so much hand wringing. Oh, it is. God. Yeah. It's like coming to terms with it, and that's the entire basis of the show. And yeah. this is just like, yep, this happened. Let's move on. Yeah. It's so refreshing. So refreshing. So in the first one, you have the naked, the naked woman, lady and then walking by. In the second episode, you have the terrifying dead woman hanging from the water tower. Yep. And I, I don't know. And they, Friday wearing a scandalous dress in broad daylight on the hood of a car. <laughs> I mean, let's count that because yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> that was. But I feel like each episode makes me realize, oh, we aren't in Kansas anymore. Like, oh. this is, like literally, we are not in Kansas <laughs> or the U.S. This is this is produced elsewhere yep. where they have a But very it's totally different... fitting for the time. I mean, oh, the yeah. 1920s was such a more liberated time. And it's kind of amazing that the things shifted back in the other direction historically after that. Yeah. But, but at least for this time period, 
people in general, I think, were more aware of these things. People were having these parties. People were mm-hmm. selling or, you know, partaking in cocaine. And people right. were... It was a different time in so many ways. And, and I think it's yet another reminder of our modern tendency to scrub clean mm-hmm. that past when that's not the truth at all. And I love that they actually show that. Yeah. I love the bit where... The girls, the two little girls, lock Dot mm-hmm. in the room. <laughs> they get the better of Dot. Yeah. It so, wouldn't be too hard, really. No. These two street smart kids Poor against Dot. Dot. Yeah, she's not going to win that one. But clearly, Jane is already a chip off the old block with Phryne. Mm-hmm. Because she she's every bit as resourceful as Franny is. And I think, as we find out later, for some of the same reasons. Franny's got money now. Right. But we, as we learn later... She had she was she, she had a hard knock yeah. life as a child. Yeah, she had to be scrappy yeah. to even survive. And I think she sees that in Jane immediately. I think she really recognizes herself mm-hmm. in Jane. She's smart. She's scrappy. She's resourceful. Right. And I'm sure she's putting herself back in that place. Like, would I have wanted to be taken in by somebody and helped along? Yeah. And yeah, if you're in the position to do it, why wouldn't you? And she says to Jack, if we give her to, if we give her over to welfare, that's oh, yeah. no life. Cause right. She won't be any better off than she is picking pockets. But it, it's again, I think, another kind of Dickensian mm-hmm. reference. If you, One of the things that Dickens actually wrote about and, and exposed through his writing was how awful the, the welfare schools were towards children at the time and in fact like when he wrote Nicholas Nickleby the fictional character of uh, Squeery um, Squeer's school for for, I can't remember the name of it in the book but um, he he actually based that school where all these children are treated horribly and it's it's so awful it's almost comical (laughs) Um, because you you think especially reading it now you think of this can't be real but it actually was based on a real place it was based on the Yorkshire schools and there was a public outcry after his novel came out and they actually reformed the schools based on that so I don't think that this when she talks about welfare being awful I don't think that that's far from the truth because there's certainly evidence of this elsewhere yeah yeah you can imagine it too at that time being pretty terrible in the very first episode she alludes to you know melbourne being a tough town mm-hmm. and you don't see that in Friday's neighborhood because right. she's in the wealthy neighborhood but there are definitely elements of this that she gets mixed up in mm-hmm. and that's where she finds you know that she finds out, finds out that jane is caught up in that world i really love the scene with Friday on top of the train Oh, yeah. I was going to mention that. Yeah, that's so good. And in fact, I've seen publicity shots for the show with that. That's such an iconic moment. It really is. And then Jack gets up there and joins her. Yeah. And yeah, and it really kind of adds to their developing relationship and just the fact that she would have climbed up on the train to kind of look out. And let's not forget that she also is hanging off the railing on the train in the back. And yeah. Yeah, we get we get to see every inch of that train car. Yes, we do. <laughs> and, they make the most of it. And, and weird implausible angles. <laughs> as well. I also love how they handled the car scene when she is leaving to go back right. home. And they I was always confused. How did they get that car to her? I don't know. And 
Honestly, it was, it took me maybe the third time of watching this episode to realize why she was even going to Ballarat. I yeah, just had, uh, yeah. she was going to claim her car. I hadn't picked up on that yeah, for like two or three watchings. but they never made it to Ballarat. No, and so she, I think, called the company or the dealership or whoever, and they came and delivered the car uh, to her. But it okay. just sort of appears. And yeah, because think, then I'm like, well, why didn't she just drive? To, oh, right, because she's going to go pick up the said yeah. car. So now this car is sitting there, and yeah. it looks like just her and Dot are preparing to leave. Oh, man. And Jack and you are watching this from the window. It's so and good. then, yeah, the luggage gets moved, and all of a sudden, Jane hops up into the seat. Yeah. You see Eunice. Yeah. And then they. She basically blah. she kidnaps like all the suspects uh-huh. and all of the. Yeah. Everyone really Everyone was involved. involved with the case. Yep. So great. And that car is kind of the ultimate. Cruella DeVille type yeah, car. It's it is. ridiculous and huge and so period and apparently there are only there were only two in the southern hemisphere of those. Really? Cars. Yeah. That's fantastic. I know. And of course Franny's got one of them. Well, of course. I mean, now to film the show, they had to find one and they literally uh, there were literally two. probably like belongs to the Prime Minister or something. <laughs> like <laughs> somebody said that the person who owns that car, the like collector was also present at the Downton Abbey finale or something. You know, there's probably like, uh, it's sort of like how you see costumes get recycled yeah. and a- you see the same actors in the same period pieces. I-, I bet there's like the period dramas Rolodex of, <laughs> of like cars to borrow. Right. Need a car? Call this person. Filming locations, <laughs> streets without too many modern telephone poles. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah, I'm sure there is. You know, and Actually, I had a total nerd moment just last week. Um, I was I was watching that film, Becoming Jane, about Jane Austen's life. Yeah. Which I have issues with because, come on, Anne Hathaway as <laughs> as Jane Austen. That, that yeah. Anyway, um, so there's a moment where she's talking to James McAvoy in the library, and James McAvoy is wearing this patterned waistcoat that. I had to pause and I looked at it and I go, I know that waistcoat. <laughs> and so I run downstairs and I grab our DVD of the BBC Pride and Prejudice from 20 years ago, from 1995, and it's the exact no. same waistcoat that Mr. Bennett wears. Wow. And nice so, work. first of all, I've seen that Pride and Prejudice way too many times. <laughs> and second, it's the period, the period producer's Rolodex. Right. At That's work again. So funny. I actually think it was a. I think it actually was an intentional mm-hmm. reference because it was like they were both Jane Austen stories. Right. I think. I think that was a costume designer's nerd moment right yeah, there. Yeah. But yeah, I think it, whoever they probably have an index of whoever owns all the Spano Suizos in the world <laughs> and all you know. And I just love. I love stuff like that. This show must be so fun to work on. Oh yeah. I mean to do the costumes and the set. Yep. And all of it. It just has to be so fun. Yeah. It kind of makes me want to quit my job yeah. and go over there uh, and do it. Although, yeah, hopefully season four. But. I know. <laughs> but I love getting a glimpse of seeing these period pieces in Australia, too, because mm-hmm. how many BBC things have we seen where oh, we're like, oh, yep, yeah, we're at that manor house in England yep. again, because yep. there's only so many of them. Right. And I've grown up with all of those yeah. films and miniseries and, yep. and the houses. We know you Chatsworth can, inside and out, having out. never been there, because yep. we've seen all of these <laughs> all of these miniseries. But, but I don't know anything about this the same history in Australia mm-hmm. and it is so nice to actually get a glimpse of that it is and buildings are just gorgeous oh yeah 
the one that they use for the Grand Hotel and yep. gets used for several episodes. Several, it's, yeah. Yeah. It gets recycled. Same stunning. alleyways. But, you know, I paused that, so when she's on the riverbank in that knockout dress and she's having this conversation with the, the crew guy, mm-hmm. um, the young student, Lindsay. I actually paused that scene to look in the background to see if there were any oh, modern elements. Wow. And I couldn't find any. Really? They had these beautiful period street lamps. And if wow. you look at the, the domed buildings in the background and there's a bridge, like there's no, I mean, they, they may have, I guess, they, I guess they could have done some digital editing, mm-hmm. but just the look of Melbourne itself is just so perfectly suited mm. to this. It's so great. Is that the dress that she wears to Ruddy Gore? Do they reuse that one? Because it's an it might asymmetrical... Be. It might be. I can't remember. There's a piece of costume that we do see in this that we see over and over and over again that we see for the first time in this episode, and it's this green fabric anemone pin yes, that she's it's wearing. it's being referred to on the tumblers as the green tribble. <laughs> <laughs> that is a green trouble the other day that's hilarious yeah. yeah she wears that pin so much yes, she does yeah. <laughs> the green i love it it's so fluffy it's I yeah i want to run my fingers it's like it. yeah it's like it's made of like tool or something mm-hmm. or yeah she also has these emerald bar earrings that she doesn't wear it in this episode but she wears those over and over and over yeah, again throughout the show and i love i think you mentioned this last time that she actually gets use out of her clothing like we yeah. get a sense that this is her real wardrobe she's actually washing and wearing well mr butler is washing <laughs> not yes she has people for that but yes so this is totally weird but the contemporary show that does the same thing is house of cards really yeah because has claire underwood had at one point you got to see her closet sort of like what was hanging up and it probably wasn't the entirety of her closet sure but um did you catch glimpses of outfits that you'd seen yeah wow she had like eight things and you know that they're all really expensive yep really well taken care of but you see her wearing them several times yeah throughout the the season wow and i love that i love that you know it always kind of bugs me when it's just this fashion show and right you see something once and then never again and it's just not realistic it's it, most even times. for the wealthiest people yeah. they're gonna rewear right things yeah i always thought of it as her suits of armor yeah <laughs> she's wearing them for different purposes that and it's sort of that's there's a line in sherlock about that where the woman irene adler oh <sighs> says um you know clothing is armor Mm -hmm. and yeah i think there's a lot of truth in that Mm -hmm. and you know that that actually was a mark of very well-made expensive clothing was that you could wear it over and over and over again it it would hold up to cleaning ironing pressing whatever and it was often the cheap ready-made garments that didn't hold up well and in fact another reference to gosford park there's this great scene where everybody treats um oh gosh i can't think of her name she plays alice in the vicar of dibley she plays charlotte in the new pride and prejudice can't think of the actress's Mm -hmm. name she is kind of the outcast because she is the poor wife of freddie's wife and she wears the only Mm non-couture dress she doesn't her dress is not handmade her dress is off the rack which for the 20s would have been a brand new thing it was very looked down upon yeah and she didn't come with a maid she didn't come with a maid she only brought the one dress she wears it to every evening activity and then even the servants are looking down upon her because they said these store-bought fabrics never clean as well. Right. It probably makes their job a lot harder. It does, yeah. So they're trying to press this, this store-bought ready-to-wear dress. And I, I, that stuff is so fascinating to me. 
is. So, so Franny's, and we find out later that Franny does have couture mm-hmm. garments, but they're so well made that she can, they hold up. But she also shops at department stores. It's so scandalous. She's actually <laughs> wearing Pret-a-Porter, yeah. brand new scandalous Pret-a-Porter. <laughs> so I also want to talk about the end of the episode where we establish the... The nightcap. Yep. And the toast. <laughs> the wrap-up. And this, I think, is the only time that we get a broad grin from Jack. And he says, you might as well call me Jack. Everybody else does. And she answers, well, you might as well call me Friday. Though hardly no, hardly anybody else does. I love that. I know. It's really good. In the books, every time they um, bring up Jack Robinson, he is introduced as Inspector... And then in parentheses, call me Jack, everyone else does. Robinson. Really? Every single time. That's so funny. Yeah. Like, I mean, in every book, that's how they introduce him. Wow. That's really so funny. they clearly took it from the book. And, you know, there's, and- there's instances where Phryne, including Jack, Phryne tells people to call her Phryne, and then they don't. Mm-hmm. They call her Miss Fisher anyway, because yeah. of her status, whatever. There is definitely an interesting tension in that scene. We find out that he's married. That's right. And she, asks, he, she asks if he has children, and he says, we were never blessed. Right. And you can tell there's something else yep. there. Like, we were never blessed. Let us not talk about this ever again. Right. Like, I yeah, don't want to... He shuts it down. He shuts it down. Really fast. Yep. But you do find out that he's married. And I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh. I, guess, I know. I guess we can't go too far with this Well, my, my first thought was suspicion. I'm like, oh, don't you dare do this whole will they, won't they, but he's married, yeah. blah, 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 because I so don't want to see that. Right. And thank goodness they didn't. So there's definite tension. And he looks at his watch when she offers the drink, and he's like, well, I uh, maybe just the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, if this were Mad Men, they'd be on their fifth by that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they have this really, like, happy interaction. I don't know yeah. if that, it, it's a bright interaction. Where it they're is both, a like, bright, smiling, I think it's the right word. And there's banter, but it's good nature. Yeah. Yeah, like, he doesn't want to talk about his personal life, and there's, there's a lot of mutual respect. Yeah, I think he's probably a little impressed that she's willing to take Jane on. Yeah. And he's also nervous, like, comes over to say, do you know what you're doing? Right. She lives a life where you would wonder, is this just a passing phase? Is she going to completely forget about Jane? But that does bring up something I did want to mention, though. Um, That terrifying scene when the the woman comes over who claims to be her aunt or whatever. Mm -hmm. I love that in that scene, um, Mr. Butler didn't intervene. Like, the man isn't the one who intervened. It was Phryne who intervened. Phryne's the one who stepped between them. Mr. Butler was there, but it, it wasn't a, we have to save the damsels here. It right. was, Phryne has proven time and time again that she's perfectly capable of taking care of herself and protecting yeah. Jane. So I really, it, like, talk about passing the Bechdel test. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He always comes out of his bedroom just too late. In his bathroom. In his bathroom. Yeah. And you're like, what have you been doing for 10 minutes while she was battling the intruder? He was making Turkish delight. I mean, I don't know when else he's going to get it done. <laughs> he took his earplugs out. He's like, oh, I think I hear something. I think I hear something. <laughs> Better get my cricket bat. <laughs> so in keeping with our first episode, I think, I think we should have our tradition of our toast at the end yeah. here. So who should we toast to today? Well, Phryne and Jack toast to... 
the kids who've had what are the how do they say oh, it? who have been put through the put ringer. through the ringer mm-hmm. so in in the grand tradition of the orphan ward like batman <laughs> and robin Franny and jane maybe we should toast today to the orphan wards of the world all right <laughs> to the orphans to the orphans cheers cheers, cheers.